I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. Today, I am delighted that we will be joined by Daphne Merkin, the author of the book This Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression. Daphne is always a bold uh, writer, a person of incredible honesty, and I think you'll see that it will be a fascinating conversation. Daphne is a novelist, a contributor to the New York Times, Elle, New York Times Magazine. Uh, She's been a book critic. She's been a movie critic. I've read, I think, everything she's written, including her novel Enchantment, her two books of essays called Dreaming of Hitler, and The Fame Lunches. And she is one of the most gifted, bold, expansive writers, and she brings all that talent uh, to her new book and a topic that um, all these years, even though we keep thinking that um, everybody's willing to talk about it, isn't, and she helps us think about talking about it again. So welcome to Just the Right Book, Daphne. Thank you so much. Now, you and I have been friends for a long time, so we have to um, probably disclose my bias, but I happen to know that you've been working on this book for a very long time. Ages. How long? I'm almost embarrassed to say, but the truth is I got the first book contract for this book in the year 2001. And 2001 was the year you wrote the piece in The New Yorker. Yeah, I was a staff writer at The New Yorker for six years, and I wrote a piece called The Black Season, about being hospitalized for depression. And there was a lot of interest in the piece, and I had a very lucrative, never again to be that lucrative, (laughs) book contract (laughs) with Houghton Mifflin, with an editor I loved. And I somehow, I started it. I felt enormous... um, I think I felt a lot of resistance to sort of heading back into the topic, Mm. even though I had actually written a proposal and I had begun gathering, given my overly graduate student quality, I gathered an enormous amount of um, information files on all kinds of depression, geriatric, postpartum, um, childhood depression, because I originally was going to write a different sort of book in which I take on sort of a lot of the culture, but I somehow couldn't move forward on it. And that editor, who I very much liked, someone named Elaine Pfefferblatt, left. Mm. And I felt she understood the book, and I felt kind of linked to her. I mean, it wasn't that long. I mean, writers, I was in book publishing myself. Writers sometimes take a while to get started. So to be fair to myself, it was under a year that I had written a certain amount of pages. But she left, and I um, was given another editor who I think I was less compatible with. And eventually, to be honest, I read some of these pages that I had already written at something called a depression night Mm. that had been organized at a club and Andrew Solomon was also there and after I read my pages he had already 
published The Noonday Demon. He did not read from The Noonday Demon as he had planned. He recited Jabberwocky because he said, I don't, I don't know why, that was his response mm. to what I read. Um, and somehow I said in passing, in my two-candid fashion, that I owed my publisher a book and I had about 50 pages. And this got picked up in New York Magazine and the publisher got in touch with me. And, you know, I basically paid the publisher back. Yeah. I kind of remember that. And, Daphne, was the reaction... So the article, the piece that you wrote for The New Yorker was, as is your style, very honest, um, very forthright about the kind of ugliness of going through a depression and a hospitalization in the way uh, that you had and described, was the reaction to the piece, aside from the big advance that we wish we could get back, was the reaction to the piece surprising to you in any way? Were people warmer, more hostile, more surprised? I mean, what was the reaction when you did that piece? There was a difference between the reaction from the reading public, from whom I got many, many letters, including one letter that ultimately is the letter that kept me writing the book, Mm. which was a letter from a woman who said she wished her sister had read the piece and would have gone into the hospital instead of committing suicide. Mm. Oh, jeez. Um... At the, it's, it's interesting. At the New Yorker itself, I felt, even though I had written, as you know, a fair amount of fairly, if you want to call them confessional, certainly very personal pieces, this piece made me feel half naked. Mm. Because in truth, and it's something I discuss in the book, you would think, you know, the New Yorker is full of ostensibly, or not ostensibly, creative people with moods and some degree of of psychological problems. I mean, the old New Yorker, when I worked in the New Yorker many, many years earlier in the typing pool, I remember there was a writer who lived in the bathroom. <laughs> it was full, actually lived in the bathroom. It was full of what you could delicately call eccentrics or less delicately called not nuts. Right. But the New Yorker of 2001 was a more corporate place. I felt from other people, well, as I write in the book, I barely went into the New Yorker. I didn't go much to my office, but I did feel a slight, not raised eyebrow, but, oh, you're going public with this level of distress. Mm. Um, And a sort of sense that it was, even for someone... Tina Brown once said to me, I was in the business of exposure. Even for someone who had exposed things, it felt very, very exposing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I was struck by thinking about the book and thinking about speaking with you, so you've been very um, transparent about sex, about variations of sex, Mm -hmm. about money, about body image, you know, lots of things which all feel safe. And one of the things that I was struck by is that here it is, 2017, and sadly last week I went, um, or actually this week, I went to the funeral 
of a relative who had 40-something in years of success in a picture-perfect family uh, committed suicide. And in, uh. and in conversations afterwards, I was reminded yet again that it still isn't okay. You can talk about cancer. You right. can talk about... And I'm, why, why do you think this, this kind of stubborn, devastating topic of depression remains something that people still feel they need to be secretive about? Right. No, I, I, Roxanne, it's something that I think a lot, it fascinates me. Last night I said to a therapist friend, why isn't there a depressive... Anonymous, yeah. For instance, um, I think it remains, and I think it's legitimate to use the word, somewhat stigmatized mm. because it uneasily trespasses on ordinary life. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It well, it does. You know what? The other piece that I'm wondering about as I'm listening to you is, I wonder if it, it's about. Maybe these two other things as well. One is, you know, I sometimes think about like how stupid we are in saying some things to people, meaning, you know, if you can't get pregnant and somebody makes a crack about, oh, they got pregnant just looking at their husband or somebody has cancer and you you don't want to talk about their cancer. You want to talk about the cancer of somebody else who who died, you know, or. I mean, all those kind of ridiculous things or somebody who is talking about dealing with profound depression and they start telling you that they read an article about if you walk 30 minutes a day, you won't be depressed anymore, you know. And so I think I I, and and I wonder if it speaks to people's own fears. Yes, I, I think it's I think because depression doesn't present with florid symptomology. Yeah, or like a big red scab on your face. No, it's essentially silent. Yeah. It's withdrawn. It's easy to overlook. I think also there's a sort of shame about depression within depressed people. Mm. And then the culture remains, well, are you really depressed? Yeah. Or... As you say, go for a walk. Yeah, man up. The distinction between the word depression is thrown around for starters. Yeah. As Diane Keaton once said to me, everyone is a little bit depressed. Mm. Since everyone deals with their own, you know, bad moods, days that they feel down, there's something threatening about the continuum going... A little over the ledge. Yes. Right. Right. So, Daphne, let's talk about you, something you talk about in in the book, the the upbringing you had in your wealthy, educated family was a little Dickensian. Yes. Uh, t- tell us about what your parents were like and that lovely little nanny you had. <laughs> As you put it so cutely, <laughs> um, my parents were as I think I described them, tough, transplanted. Both of them were German Jews, um, left Germany 
variously. My mother in 1936, her family went to then Palestine. My father left Leipzig in 1939, and he went to England briefly and then America. Um, my parents met in America. Um, they were, my father was 42 when he married. My mother was, although years later she kept insisting she was 29, like this made all the difference. She was 30, <laughs> which for those days was uh, late. Was, as I told her, the equivalent of 50. Yeah. She was also Orthodox, so that was, they were Orthodox Jews. And she proceeded to pell mell in a big rush, produce six children. The first four of us are about all told, five years apart. Mm. And then there's a little gap of two years between the last two. I think there was a miscarriage or there would have been seven. Um, my father truthfully did not have a paternal bone in his body, was a mixture of remote, demanding, very demanding of my mother's time, very impatient with any normal childhood intrusion. Thus, we were all even at a very young age, expected to be very quiet when mm. he came home. And my mother was, one I could put it kindly, I mean, she remains to me not entirely clear, something of a mystery to this day. She was mercurial and quite destructive, mm. although she was capable of warmth. Yeah. She also was hypercritical, you know, did ha- had none of this sort of haze, you know, that often parents see their children, oh, my child is a marvel. Yeah. My Gifted. mother was the opposite. There wasn't a fault that escaped her. Mm. And perhaps least, what I, le- uh, someone said to me in an interview, did I forgive my parents? And I paused, and I thought that the thing I probably don't forgive is who my mother hired. She was a fairly absent mother because she was very busy taking care of my father and sort of running their lives. She hired a, for lack of a better word, fairly brutal woman, Dutch woman, who had been a cleaning woman for cousins, herself one of 16 children, to take care of us. And she literally did everything. My mother did not do any of the physical. When we were young, my mother didn't wake us up or get us breakfast or get us ready for school or any of that. You know, all that was done by this woman we called Jane. And Jane was given to punitive. I mean, she actually beat all of you. Yes. I have a sister. One of my sisters claims she remembers we were black and blue. I don't know if that's true, but she certainly... Beat is the right word, and kicked and punched and locked my, some of us in, clo- in the closet. And didn't she once bang your head against the yes. wall? she banged my head against a bathroom wall when I tried to resist her. I mean, I was terrified of her. And, and Daphne, do you subscribe to the notion, to a notion in the nurture, nature, element of contributing factors to depression? That, that nurture is a contributing factor? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something I've given a lot of thought to. And then when I wrote a piece a few years ago for the Times, they asked me to write a piece on the, is depression inherited? 
which I, and I talk to various people. Of course, the question of depression inherited is always secretly about where, where do we place the blame. Right, right. And in truth, depression, like other things, is, has a genetic component, as in 50%. Mm-hmm. But you need triggers. Right. You could have a... I call it combustible chemistry. Yes, very well put. I mean, you could, you could have a very depressed mother and yourself not be depressed because the, the, the factors of your upbringing were optimal enough that you didn't become depressed. Mm-hmm. So I think people have a hard time that it's a mixture, that it's not either or. Yeah. I mean, yes, there is a genetic component, but frankly, again, as I said in my book, if you look at any family and go back a generation or two, somewhere there's a depressed or melancholic aunt or a suicidal uncle. I mean, it's not hard to find. Yeah, you don't have to dig too deep. No. And, you know, Daphne, the other thing that occurred to me, and I, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this, but I was reminded of it reading the book that I became so curious about what life was like for each of your parents as they were growing up. What were their parents like? And there, you know, this kind of thread of how people become the way your parents did, because they were heartless. Yeah. I mean, I know you've said your mother was warm, and I know there are many, many ways in which you were attached to her, but in reading about them, it's hard not to think of them as just utterly heartless. Right. Right. No, especially in that when when this incident with my brother, when he's in a very bad accident, in a car accident, when he's sent to Israel against his will, and and, and to my horror, they didn't go. Um, Yeah, I remember you describing that. So I think my father was simply a deeply self-absorbed, slightly, either call it autistic or little schizoid, not connected. Mm. Um, And I see my father more as a kind of absence than a total, total negative. Yeah. Yeah. My mother, I think her family, I mean, I have a sister who says, you know, she's absolutely inexplicable from her family and, you know, that she's, I mean, I have terms like evil don't particularly help me, and I don't know if I call my mother evil, although there was something enormously hostile about her to her own. She had a very, very close relationship to her own father, who was a figure in his own right, a fairly significant figure in Germany, where he was a lawyer, and I think the only Jewish member of the, that philosopher, I'm forgetting his name, some major philosopher, he was allowed in that society. And then when they moved to Israel, he also wrote books and became involved in Zionist, religious Zionist politics. I had heard, I never met him, that he was very, very, um, I was going to say, that he had a very sort of satirical tongue and he could be very cruel. My mother was very close to him, was not close to her own mother. Mm. Um I think in many ways was miscast as a mother. Yeah, yeah. Would have made a formidable executive, should have become something other than a mother. Certainly not as her 
so-called primarily primary role. Mm. I think that happens to any number of people who just consider it sort of inevitable that they ought to have kids with. I mean, in, I mean, maybe that's changing a little bit where women think a little bit more carefully about whether they actually want kids or suited to having kids. But for someone like your mother, who by your description was not so suited to then have six. Right. (laughs) Sort of stunning. Stunning. But she had six. She once said to me, she had three, three siblings, originally four. They all got married ahead of her and had between them five, five and seven children. Wow. It was, it was certainly competitive. Yeah. She once said to me it was her revenge on the money. Not sure what that was supposed to mean, that Mm. even though she had, this is what she used the money for. Although, as the book makes clear, she didn't really use the money on us. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, um, really? (laughs) I don't know. There was something, even though she was a sophisticated woman in many ways, there was something primitive about her psychology. Yeah. You know, I was just like, in reading, I thought, wow, I would have loved to sit down with your parents and explore how they're how they thought or where they came from or what made them unhappy or happy or right um because you're 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 struck by something having been a contributing factor to yes. their being the way they were i mean i just don't think you spring whole from the womb that way no i agree and i have thought i mean that they were helpless in a way yes i would that's i agree with you roxanne i would say in some ways Maybe more than I... My mother was also a victim of her own history. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Three immigrations aren't so easy. Right. She never got over Germany. She was very fond of Frankfurt. Um, I don't know the whole Holocaust. She lost very close people in it, very close relatives. Um it was a theme. Being being my mother was a sort of macabre theme. Mm. You know, she drew swastikas on me, um, which I never totally understood. But she was Gee, pretty... why not, Daphne? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the whole... There was a part of her that had a kind of mentality. If it wasn't concentration camp, what are you complaining about? Mm. Yeah. You know, um, it it reminds me of a story that doesn't seem um, quite quite that funny. But um, when my so my mother is, I think, you know, is a Holocaust survivor. And uh, for her 55th birthday, I took her to a spa in Florida. And it turned out there were like three or four other mother daughters there then who were all substantially younger um, then we were like the mothers were, you know, 40 and the daughters were 20. And right. my mother and I were, I, I was 35. I was almost the age of some of the mothers. And we're sitting there at this like last lunch at the spa. And my mother, who's not, who, who's still alive and not necessarily funny nor reflective. Right. Um, and has been pretty stoic about her wartime experiences and the deaths uh, that she had to witness. 
But she's, she sat there and she said, who would have thought when I was in Auschwitz that I'd pay to starve? And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, you watch, the, you watch the mothers and daughters and they're like, uh, okay, what right. do I do with that one? Right. You know, do I, do right. I lay off or <laughs> right. is this like we hadn't talked about this before? <laughs> right. Right. It, it was an odd way to end, you know, right. three days at a spa in wow. Florida. <laughs> yeah. Daphne, let me ask a, sort of on a different um, note. You were first hospitalized when you were eight, mm. and then you were um, hospitalized when you were um, after your mom died. Yeah. And after you had Zoe, your daughter. Yes. Right, with a... Uh, postpartum. postpartum. I forget at which point you were given astonishing doses of Prozac that weren't even FDA approved. Right. That wasn't actually within a hospital setting. That was sometime in my 20s. Yeah. I was, I went to briefly and um, Payne Whitney or New York Hospital had some kind of institute for the prevention of suicide. Mm. <laughs> okay. And I went to it, and I still remember the doctor's name was John Mann, and he said there's a new medication, and um, you should try it. And um, and you knew it was experimental. Yeah. However, I'm not sure what that meant to me at that age. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I, I, he said it was experimental, and... I took it, and it was fairly, if I say so, miraculous. Mm. But then he kept upping it, and and you I got still, sick, right? I got enormous. You know, he upped it, and I couldn't to eighty milligrams, which isn't given these days, and I couldn't sleep because it's so activated. So they gave me, I still remember the name, an antidepressant called Deseril. Mm. The combination of the two. I ended up with first enormous stomach pains and then what proved to be that I could not urinate on my own. Mm. And I had to use a catheter for six weeks. That's not fun. No. And Daphne, where I know you've had an uneasy um, kind of relationship with being on antidepressants. Yeah. How, how do you feel about it? in in retrospect truthfully because my unease my ambivalent relationship with it has continued i will say like last summer because there are side effects which are downplayed always one of them for several of the antidepressants weight gain is an unavoidable side effect and there are you know I have friends who wouldn't dream of staying on them for that reason alone. Mm. Um, That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Right. I tried to go off antidepressants last summer. Possibly it was done not so well because you have to taper. And my mood plummeted to suicidal depths. Now, I will say one, if you ask me... um, sort of imprisonment of antidepressants is that they are very, very hard to go off of. Yeah. Because when you go off them, you, they, you begin mimicking the symptoms that got you on. Yeah. So I sometimes feel, am I going to forever um, 
have to stay on them, particularly one that has certainly contributed to my having diabetes, sort of very bad liver stuff. There's one that's, it's, that's a remarkable medication when used in conjunction with, has been remarkable for me, I should say. It's an antipsychotic that when is used in a low dose facilitates antidepressants called Abilify. Mm-hmm. But it has many side effects. Mm-hmm. But Abilify probably has helped me the most, has mm-hmm. kept me on an even keel. Looking back, I don't know, I wonder, I think they, I mean, I say this without being a complete believer, so it's odd to say this, I think they probably kept me alive. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing, right? Right. You know, I, I of course, hear what you're saying about side effects and unintended consequences, but you can't help but weigh that against the possibility that you're alive because of them. Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the things that I've been meaning uh, to ask you is that was striking to me. You know, at one point, I remember you and I talking, it might have still been when you were under contract to Houghton, and the title of the book was going to be Melancholy Baby, which I always loved as a title. Me too. But I'm struck by the shift to a title that you did use called This Close to Happy, because that feels like a different place in a journey to me. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's very astute of you, because in a way it is. Melancholy Baby, which I was fairly wedded to myself. Yeah, we both were. I know, you liked I kept saying, but Roxanne likes it. Um, my publishers were never as taken with it as I was. And then, although it was still up in the air as a title, then as I was coming to the end of the book... I had never figured out how I was going to end the book. I didn't want to say, to offer, you know, some self-help bromide, you know, bow to the wind four times a day, take a long bath, and you will never again suffer from depression. But Mm. I suddenly started writing. It it, it kind of emerged rather than felt. Yep. I suddenly started writing this scene set in a summer house. And as I was writing it, I talked about my daughter having friends, um, sort of simple pleasures. Mm. And I wrote suddenly the phrase, which I end the book on, who thought, whoever thought I would be this close to happy. Right, right. And I think I first thought, hmm. And I think writing that scene, I feel in some ways, what was a nod that the journey has taken a, mm. a shift in the road. I mean, I don't want to say because having, <laughs> being a suspicious sort or whatever, I don't want to say that. You don't want to canine a horror here. Exactly. I didn't know how to say that, that in secular evil eye yeah. terms. <laughs> People should know canine a horror. It's a good word. They should know Yes, they certainly should. Um, that somehow some of the the depression, I feel partly, I must give credit to an excellent, excellent therapist. Mm. I think the it, therapy can do a lot. 
together with medication. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think possibly I said to someone, maybe you age out of depression. I don't even know if that's, I mean, it's obviously geriatric depression, which hits when you're older. But some of the acute misery mm. I've learned to navigate yeah. and circumvent. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are places I don't go anymore. Yeah, because it's not worth it's not right. worth the possible upheaval. Right. Yeah, I do. You know, I think that's a really interesting point, Daphne. I've been I've been thinking about uh, that sort of thing in a wider way. Of um, you know, you get to an age, I'm late sixties, and you say, you know what, I don't really want to be doing things that aren't necessarily the way I want to live or operate or go to that kind of restaurant or go to take that kind of trip or, you know, I can read about Patagonia and think I'd want to go there if I could sort of click my Dorothy shoes and get there. Right. But do I really want to fly 15 hours and take three more planes or four hours and then go on a bumpy ride for two hours? Mm, Probably not. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) And maybe it's like that. I mean, not to make light of what you're saying. I agree with you. I think it is a certain, a mixture of... You know, your own cautionary signs. Right. Exactly what I was going to say. That it's a mixture of a certain amount of, I think, healthy caution. Yeah, yeah. Mixed with knowledge of yourself. I mean, if you don't... I'm 62. I should have some knowledge of myself. Um, I hope I do. There are... Even family places I don't want to go anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my parents are both dead, but my siblings are certainly all... I mean, I made a decision. I'm just mentioning it, Roxanne, because it's interesting what you're saying. Last summer was the 10th anniversary of my mother's death. Mm-hmm. And sort of a little haphazardly, it was decided because in the German-Jewish tradition, there are always sort of, you always commemorate everything. Right. So it was the decision, my mother was buried in Israel, as was my father, that we go to Israel and have a little ceremony. I decided not to go. Mm. It was a big decision for me, but I partly felt I didn't want to stand around a hotel corridor in Israel with my older sister discussing how terrible my mother was. Yeah. While yeah. we were there to commemorate her death. Right. But somehow I w- wanted to call a halt to certain certain paths or s- ways of being stuck. Mm-hmm. So I think similarly with when I feel sort of, uh, you know, as I did last summer, depression coming on. I mean, it was pretty bad. In that case, it was sort of caused partly by going off medication. I also try to sort of tell myself, you know, to coax myself forward. I don't want to say that always works. Yeah, but maybe in combination. Yes. I mean, these are all contributing factors. There's not the magic bullet. That's, no. That's not what you're saying. And, you know, one of the – here's sort of a closing uh, set of questions, Daphne, that, you know, the reviews of your book – uh, in the New York Times um, and in the Wall Street yeah. Journal were exemplary right. and I think well-deserved. Um, and I think it obviously 
will serve a for a very long time. I mean, I do think this will I do think your book will be considered an important book in the um you know lineup of books right. like Darkness Visible I hope or so, yes. Noonday Demons. I think I, I think it will. So I think it will uh, most readily and most obviously be um, informative and comforting to people who are dealing with depression by your giving it so much light of day. The other part of it that I'm curious about hearing from you, in my reading it, it made me much more informed and empathetic in thinking about dealing with people that I know that are struggling with depression. And I wonder if you have advice for people who have a friend, a spouse, a child, or a parent, how they might think about that or be helpful or not harmful to that person. I think one of the things I certainly wanted with my book was a little to speak up for actual depressed people. I always think of that line from Beth got speak up for bastards. Mm. I felt like speak up for the depressed of the world. But I also felt I wanted to convey to people who are around depressed people mm. that it shouldn't be taken. I think there's a certain dance you do around seriously depressed people yeah. that helps, which is a mixture of not dismissing it, not saying oh, as you said before, take a walk, or I don't think anyone wants to hear in the midst of a bad depression, it'll pass. Mm. I mean, it will pass, but that's not, I think it has to be given its due, Mm -hmm. that the person should convey, whether it's to a young, someone young, or even a child or a teenager, some understanding that it's a very hard thing to go through, that it's real. Yeah, that it's not a invented malingering. Yeah, it's not a it's not a self-indulgent no unwillingness not to pull up your big boy pants. Right. The self-indulgent um hurling that at it I think is is really an incredibly negative mm. in its effect because I think people who are depressed feel that anyway. Yeah, it sends them it must send them back in the dark. Yes. Right? Okay, I'm not going to bring this up again. Absolutely. It, it would make them retreat into further into their own heads. Then I think, I mean, if you're a good friend, if you're a parent, you could suggest, not that I think depressed people are that communicative, but you could say, you know, is there anything you want to talk about? You mm. could suggest, I think anything that sort of validates that it has a life of its own. Yeah. I would bring up, if the person doesn't go to a therapist, do you want to talk to someone about it? Mm -hmm. Bring up medication, not leave it stranded there, you know, as an untreatable, amorphous illness. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I think depressed people, truly, Roxanne, need company, need someone to sit in a room with them. Even quietly. Absolutely. Yeah. Not saying anything. Yeah. Like, sit in the room and read next to them, watch TV next to them. Yep. Make yep. them feel less isolated. Yeah. Well, Daphne, I, you know, we'll have more conversations. Yes. Um, 
I, I I so enjoyed this. I really want I, I want to thank you for any number of things. Uh, one is I love everything you write, and I love that you can go high and low. That you can write brilliantly about pocketbooks and lipstick, right? And, and then sound like someone with a PhD in philosophy, <laughs> um, and then get in the gutter on some other right. uh, topic and. You know, I'm always thrilled to read anything that you write. But I having you and I having had lots of conversations over the years about you producing this book, it does really feel that you did it at the right moment, both for you and as importantly, I think you're having this conversation and talking about depression in a way that will be impactful, important, and helpful to people either struggling with depression or those of us around depression. It's hard, you know, if anybody's living in the world to not be around right. that because it, it happens quite a bit. So thank you for being on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me. And and we'll figure out a time that we'll get you to Connecticut. And meanwhile, have so much fun on your tour. Thank you. And thanks for writing the book, Daphne. You're welcome. Thanks so much. For a complete list of the books we've talked about, including Daphne Merkin's This Close to Happy, just go to bookpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book on iTunes. We want to hear from you, so please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. And thanks to our audio engineer, Pat Keo and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all for listening.